Take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 4. Now we've left Paul for a little while. He has made his decision. The next three or four chapters and acts are going to be the result of that disobedient decision. And we'll get to that in a few weeks. For the next five weeks, we're going to be looking at who's your one. Uh, Tom will be back next week. He will talk about this some in the service next Sunday. He's probably watching the service right now, and he just learned that next week he'll be talking about this some in the service. Um, hey, Tom. Uh, we're gonna, this is our third. If you, when, when you get your vision uh, for September, you'll see this is our third leg of evangelism emphasis. We talked about three circles. Uh, uh, Tom preached on our need for evangelism and the uh, uh, various aspects of that in June. And now, who's your one? Who are we taking the gospel to? Well, we're just asking you to pick one person. There are probably more than that who need to be discipled by you, but we're asking you to choose your one. Pray for that one. Talk to that one. Build a relationship with that one. If everybody here this morning had their one that within the next year they brought to Christ, we would double who's here this morning, right? See how that works? That is simple math. Even a preacher can do it. That's what we would have if we all went after our one. So we're going to be looking at that for the next few weeks. If you go online and you Google uh, the title of this message or the title of the next five messages, you will find not just me preaching this message, but you'll find the original sources. J.D. Greer uh, preached the next two, um, uh, or the next uh, this one, I think. Johnny Hunt preached two or three of the ones I'm going to do. This is part of a, a series, part of a, an emphasis from the Southern Baptist Convention on who's your one. So, yes, I am preaching other people's sermons for the next five weeks. Trust me, it is not as simple as just pulling out their transcript and reading it. I wish it were. I wish I, well, I, I could do that, but I can't. So uh, you, you can get this a number of different ways. You can hear how J.D. preached this message if you want to. If you go to his website, I'm sure it's there somewhere. So who's your one is our emphasis. This morning, we are looking at Matthew 4, 18 through 23. Uh, that's uh, our, our go-to passage today. What comes to mind when you think of certain people? Now, I'm going to tell you the people to think of. Don't, you know, don't come up with your own, uh, though I'm sure you get some images. Uh, what comes to mind when you think about these folks in particular? What comes to mind when you think about a politician? Now, we can go a couple different directions. What comes to mind when you think of, say, uh, a Trump supporter? Or what comes to mind when you think of a, a Bernie Sanders supporter? Somebody between those two? There's a lot of space there. What you, you come up with a visual, probably. You come up with an assumed set of beliefs. Uh, you come up with an assumed, I would think, even spiritual position sometimes. Often incorrectly, but sometimes. All right, well, what comes to mind when you think of, say, a CrossFit fanatic, like me? <laughs> I moved some stuff in the office yesterday. 
and I'm sore because of it. So, um, you know, maybe I'm not a CrossFit fanatic. Uh, there's, a, there's a joke that's out there. Um, a, oh, gosh, now I can't even remember it, so I, I, I'm not even going to bother telling it, but it, it's funny. You'd love the joke. It's hilarious. Um, uh, I think it's something like a Calvinist, a CrossFit fanatic, and a vegan were in a bar. How did you know? They all told you. That's, that's the, that, that's, well, I'm glad four or five of you got it. That's a very funny joke, by the way. Um, but that's, we, we think of a CrossFit, you know, they, they, they're always drinking their protein shakes, and they, they walk like this because they can't really move their arms, and, 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 and they, they look good. I mean, they're, they're very, very strong. Maybe that's the, uh, what comes to mind when you think of a millennial? Um, John Christ, if you're into uh, Christian comedians, uh, has a great image for us of a millennial. Uh, if you think back a couple of years, you think of a guy in Christmas onesie talking about health insurance with his family. If you remember that, a um, lot of cultural references that apparently I only know. Um, what comes to mind when you think of an Alabama fan? A mullet, you know, um, uh, uh, and I'll stop there. Um, I, I think of family members uh, that because I have family members that are Alabama fans. What, what comes to mind when you think of a vegan? Poor person. Doesn't eat steak. Doesn't eat chicken. Doesn't eat eggs. You know, we have these, these ideas. What comes to mind when you think of a Christian? And if we were asking people to describe what a Christian is, we're going to get a lot of different answers. As a matter of fact, if, if you ask 10 people who claim to be a Christian, Andy Stanley, uh, pastor in Atlanta, says this, if you ask 10 people who claim to be Christian what, it, what a Christian is, you're going to get probably nine different answers from those people, depending on what tradition, what faith tradition you, you talk to them from. You're going to get a lot of different answers. Based on this little exercise, we see that impressions and stereotypes are hard to overcome. I mean, even those of us, most of us in here would say we are Christian. Maybe all of us in here would say we are Christian, but we still have our own stereotypes and impressions of what a Christian is, and, and that may not be accurate. All right, last word association game. What about disciple? What comes to mind when you think of disciple? We grew up in Sunday school, most of us think of 12 of them, and one who fell away, right? But there's more to being a disciple than just the 12. That's what we're going to look at this morning. We're actually going to see, let me remind you actually, that the first followers of Jesus did not call themselves Christians. Initially, that was a derogatory term. It was, oh, you think you're little Jesuses, you're little Christs. Christian means little Christ. They eventually took the name. They're like, that's not a bad name for us. We are supposed to be little Christs, have the mind of Christ, and, and uh, follow him and imitate him. And okay, Christian works. We'll take that. They, they uh, f called themselves followers of the way a lot. But Christian, the word Christian is only used three times in the New Testament. Only three times. The word disciple is used 281 times in the New Testament. Where do you think the authors of the New Testament, ultimately the Holy Spirit, put the emphasis on discipleship, on being like 
Christ. As a matter of fact, some would say that Christian may actually be a weakening of what we are called to be. A weakening of what we are called to be. It, it gives us a label without responsibility as we describe it or as we use it. See, the thing is, we can call ourselves a Christian and not actually be a disciple. The Bible, though, is clear on what a disciple is. The Bible doesn't give us really any leeway or any wiggle room, and we see this in Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 through 22, the calling of the first disciples. If you don't have a copy of God's Word with you, reach in the pew in front of you and grab one so you can follow along. It should match what you see on the screen as well. Matthew 4, 18 through 22. As he was walking along the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Follow me, he told them, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and his brother John. They were in a boat with Zebedee their father, preparing their nets, and he called them. Immediately, the, they left the boat and their, uh, and their father and followed him. Let's get a little, little background here for a second as we get a run and start into what it is uh, to be a disciple. All Hebrew boys went to Torah school, learning the first five books of the Old Testament, uh, starting at age five. All Hebrew boys, that was your school. Uh, you went, you learned that, you learned to memorize, uh, you memorized large sections of it, large chunks of it. By age 10, all the young boys then knew the Torah. They, they didn't have the whole thing memorized, but they had, again, large chunks of it. Some of them, really good students, would have more memorized than others. And the best students went on to study the rest of the Old Testament, the prophets and the, the writings and those sorts of things. But there was a culling at this point. At 10 years of age, you know, some 80% or so of the boys went home. They started learning the family business. And uh, this 20% stayed on and learned more of the Old Testament. At about age 17, you could go on and make a career out of religious studies. There was no higher profession of the day than to be a student of the law, to be a teacher, to be a, a, a scribe or a, a, a Pharisee or those sorts of positions. There, there was no better job, there was no more secure position, and there was no place of honor greater than that. So at age 17, if you have really shown yourself to be a, an incredible student, you begin to look for a rabbi, or you find a rabbi, a teacher that you admired, and you apply to become one of his disciples. Uh, Hebrew word for that was a, a Talmud. So you, you, you go and you find this fella, and, and you get one that you like, and he's out here teaching one day, and you would go and you would sit at his feet. That would be the application process. You go and sit at his feet, you, you're requesting at that point to learn from him, and then the rabbi would begin to ask you questions. He would test you. He would quiz you and uh, put you through this series of tests to see if you were worthy to be one of his disciples. And the rabbis would choose only the smartest, most talented boys to be their disciples. One of the reasons, they, I mean, they wanted somebody smart, they wanted somebody who could do well, but 
the other reason a rabbi was so careful about his selection was because the goal of a Talmud, of a student, was not just to gain all this knowledge, not just to learn things, but to be exactly like the rabbi, be exactly like the teacher. They would study his mannerisms and the way he talked and, and the way he answered questions and, and how he answered or how he, he, uh, he asked questions. They didn't want to know just what the rabbi knew. They wanted to know what that rabbi did. And there was a saying that was, there was no higher compliment to give to a Talmud for, uh, than to say, you have the dust of your rabbi on you. You have followed him so closely, you are so familiar, you are so like him that it's, he has rubbed off on you. And so for several years, these, uh, these Talmudim, these, that's the plural for Talmud, uh, these Talmudim would follow their rabbi and they would imitate him in every way, the goal of their discipleship to be just like the rabbi. All right, so now we have an idea of what a disciple was. We come to the text, though, and we see this whole idea turned on its head. And uh, first of all, first point this morning, Jesus didn't choose the best. He chooses the willing. Jesus didn't choose the best. He chooses the willing. We see that in verse 18. As he was walking along the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the sea for they were fishermen. In the history of rabbis and students, the student comes to the rabbi and wants to be a part. Here we have Jesus do, doing the choosing. Actually, what we have here, and you, you may have lost sight of, of what we've been talking about in the three years I've been here, but we began soon after I came the, the theology of the church, the church to the world, Acts is, but we have been talking about the first church, what it means to be a church of Jesus Christ. For three years, I've been preaching on that. And we started in Genesis, and we've worked halfway or more through Acts. We're getting there. But this, this moment, and we need to see this as a church, this was the first act of the formation of the church. This is Jesus' first act of bringing the church body, the ecclesia, together. And what's odd is no rabbi would have ever chosen fishermen. Fishermen are not going to be the first choice of a student. Just, just doesn't happen. I mean, they, these guys probably quit Torah school at five. And that was the last of their education. They've been learning the family business ever since. I mean, fishermen would have been second string, uh, JV, second fiddle, B team, whatever you want to call it. This would not have been the cream of the crop by any means. It's not even the cream of the crop of professions. It's not the first profession you would go after. But Jesus did not choose based on skills. Jesus chose fishermen. He chose an IRS agent in Matthew. He chose a former terrorist in Simon the Zealot. Jesus didn't go after the people that everybody thought he should. In this case, especially, he's going after people with little potential, little education, and no power, no influence. This is who he is choosing as his disciple. 
Alexandria was the seat of, of learning. Athens was the seat of philosophy. Rome was the seat of power. There's no Alexandria, no Athens, and no Rome in this selection. Why would he choose the B team? He chose the B team because Jesus knew his work would not come from their abilities for him, but his work through them. See, it did not matter what they were able to do. Jesus knew what was important was what he would do through them. It's the same for us today. He's not looking for the people that are the most skilled, the best at it. I've told you before, in my personal life, the calling to preach was outside of not just my ability, but outside of my desire. I had no problem standing before a crowd singing. But to stand up and talk for 20 minutes, 10 minutes, much less 35 or 40, that's just not me. I can't do that. I can't talk in front of people. It was a supernatural spiritual gifting that God gave me that I would not have known or had outside of the work of the Holy Spirit. He didn't call me because I was able. He called me so he could do something through me. He wants to do the same thing for you. He wants to use you in your family, your school, your work, your church, your neighborhood, your community. We've said it like this for years. God doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. That is what he does with his disciples. There's been a, a, a meme going around on Facebook that I loved when I saw it because it's such a personal testimony of mine. Uh, and it said, when God put a calling on your life, he already factored in your stupidity. And he did. He already factored in my stupidity. Y'all, there are days, weeks, months where I admit before God, I cannot do this. I'm not equipped. I'm not able. I don't have all the great ideas that I should have. I don't have the skills I have. And God says, I factored in your stupidity when I called you. Your calling is not based on you. Your calling is based on me. That is your personal testimony as well. Your calling is not based on what you can do. Every one of you in here is a teacher or a preacher or an evangelist. Not because you think you're a good teacher, preacher, or evangelist, but because if that is what God has called you to, that is what he will equip you for. There's no job that you can say in the church, no ministry area that you can say, I can't do that. Oh, there might be plenty you can say, I won't do that. But there's nothing you can say, I can't do that, if God has called you to that. Jim Cimbala put it this way, he said, God is attracted to weakness. He can't resist those who humbly and honestly admit how desperately they need him. Our weakness, in fact, makes room for his power. Paul said it a different way. He said, in, his, in my weakness, I am made strong. Someone in this room, Jesus was was talking to the disciples uh, let me back up for a second jesus was talking to the disciples and he was talking about how great john the baptist was just incredible i mean if if, if you wanted a, a rabbi who got it if you wanted a teacher who got it john the baptist got it give up everything 
teach, preach the word, and everything else can, you know, forget it. Doesn't matter. That, that is not important. What's important is God's word. And he was talking about how great he was, and he's telling the disciples this, and he tells them, but you know what? As great as John the Baptist was, the greatest among men, he said, in the kingdom of God, he is what? The least. He's the least in the kingdom of God. Why? John the Baptist didn't have the Holy Spirit. Now, he was not in the way that we have the Holy Spirit post-resurrection. Remember, John the Baptist never saw the cross. He saw the cross in the future. But he never experienced the cross. He, he was not around for Pentecost. He never received the Holy Spirit like we do. Somewhere in here, in this room, as far as our responsibility to the kingdom, somebody in this room is the least in the kingdom. It's, you don't have to raise your hand if you think you're, you're it. But it just right percentages. Someone in here has the least Bible knowledge and the least gifting or, or something like that. Somebody in here has that. And you're better than John the Baptist. You are. No matter how weak you think you are spiritually, if you have the Holy Spirit, you are greater than John the Baptist. That should give us hope. That should make us excited that God can do that and use us. So he didn't, the, Jesus didn't choose the best, he chose the willing. Point number two, he chose us, not we him. He chose us, not we him. Verse 19, just the first two words, follow me, he told them. Follow me. This is an unconditional, unexplained command, not a polite, reasoned invitation. This is not Jesus saying, if you're not busy, if there's nothing better to do in your life, if you're okay with this and you go home and you look at your bank account and you look at your work schedule and you look at your leisure schedule and if everything works out fine, would you please then consider, maybe pray about, thinking about coming and, and, and following me a little on occasion when you can. This is follow me. Period. It was a command. It was a huge confidence boost for the Talmudim, these students, if they went and sat at the feet of a rabbi, and that rabbi chose them. Down the road, uh, on a bad day when they're teaching, and they say, Isaiah said, and it was really Jeremiah that said it, not Isaiah, because they got it confused. When they're, when they're standing up and they, the, the wind blows their notes off of their, their pulpit and, and they, they don't know where they were and they've got to go back and, and they stumble over their words. On those bad days when things aren't going well for those Talmudim, they always get to go back, yeah, but Rabbi so-and-so chose me. So he saw something. Blew it today, but he saw something. On your bad days, when it doesn't feel like you've made any headway in your personal discipleship, on those bad days when you knew you should have spoken to someone about Jesus and you didn't, on those days, we get to look back and say, I blew it, but Jesus chose me. 
so tomorrow I'm going to do a better job. I mean, look, look at what goes on here. He chooses guys that weren't even looking for him. They may have had some knowledge of who he was. They may have heard about this itinerant preacher, this rabbi. They, they talked about his authority over and over and over in the Gospels. They talk about the authority of Jesus. And, and we kind of gloss over that, oh, he taught well. No, they, they, there was a particular um, level of rabbi that had authority. You had teachers, but people with authority could come in and say, You've heard it this way, but this is the way it's supposed to be. Jesus taught like that. There were just a few of those rabbis throughout Jewish history, names that I've talked about before, like Hillel. I've talked to you all about him. Someone else would be Gamaliel, who would be Paul's teacher, Saul's teacher. I have no doubt that if Saul had not been converted, we would have heard of Saul, the uh, rabbi with authority. So when Jesus chooses these guys, and, and they're not even looking for him, that has got to be a great confidence boost. But not just that. Choosing by Jesus is a guarantee. If he chose you, he will see you through the calling. He will see you through whatever it is he has told you to do. Right now, you I, we lack confidence in our ability to do the things Jesus called us to. If I'm wrong, tell me, but I think I'm right. We don't think we can do it. Now, where is our confidence misplaced? Where does that, that lack of confidence come from? It's not in Jesus, right? We, we believe Jesus did all these miracles, and he was this great teacher with authority. We know he was son of, the son of God. So we don't lack the confidence that Jesus is able to do the things he said he would do. We don't la lack the confidence in his ability. What we lack, for whatever reason, is confidence in his willingness to do what he said. We know he can, but we wonder if he will beauty of Jesus is he knew we would wonder that. So in John 15, 16, he said, you did not choose me, but I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce fruit and that your fruit should remain so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. I chose you. You are to produce fruit and if you ask in my name, the Father will give it to you. So if you are asking for fruit, if you ask today, Lord God, who is my one? He will give you your one. And when you say, Lord, give me the opportunity to have that conversation with my one, he will give you the opportunity to have that conversation. And when you say, Lord, during this conversation, give me the words to say. Open the door to a gospel conversation. He will give you the words to say, and he will open the door to that conversation. And at that point, it is no longer your responsibility. Your requirement is not to see people saved. You can't make people get saved. Your requirement is to share the gospel with them. If Jesus called you to bear fruit, according to John 15, 16, and bearing fruit is making disciples, if he called you to bear fruit, and he did, he will work through you to do that. He will not break his promise. He chose you. 
you did not choose him. He chose you to bear fruit. Third point, our primary calling is to be with him. Again, he says, follow me in in verse 19. He gives no extra information there. He doesn't add anything else. Uh, He doesn't tell them where they're going to go and what they're going to do. It's very similar to the call on Abraham when he was living in Ur. And he said, go to the country, I will show you. Get up and go where I'll show you. Get up, go. That's really all the information Abraham had. The the disciples here, uh, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, all they had was Follow me. Where are we going? I didn't say where we were going. What are we going to do when we get there? I didn't say that. Follow me. See, the initial call, the call to follow, isn't a call to do. It's a call to become. Follow me isn't come do something. Follow me is come become something. And what we are called to become is like him. Remember? The Talmudim wanted to have the dust of their rabbi on them. They wanted to mimic everything. They wanted to be just like the rabbi. That's the calling here uh, from Jesus to his disciples. Become like me. Follow me. Become just like I am. The thing is, to become like him, Jesus knew, you have to know him. Call the disciples, follow me. Get to know me then you'll become like me. But we also understand that to know him, you have to spend time with him. They couldn't just show up on Saturday morning in the temple for an hour, listen to Jesus speak, and the rest of the week never give him the time of day. They weren't spending time with their rabbi at that point. They were giving him a small sliver and expecting that to change them, and it didn't work. So to know him, they had to spend time with him, a lot of time with him. So they gave up everything to do that. But to spend time with him now as believers in 2019, to spend time with him, we have to spend time in his word. This It's where we get to know Jesus. Not on a sports field, not on a lake, not anywhere else. Now, you can do this in those places, but that is not how we get to know Jesus. That we spend time in his word. But I would dare say that if you're spending time on the sports field or at the lake or in a deer stand or something like that, you're not spending time with Jesus, you're spending time with some sort of ball or a fishing rod, or a gun and animals. Your, your, your secondary thought is maybe God. Your primary thought is what you're doing that day. So the way we spend time with him as a church, as a corporate body of believers, is weekly messages like this one. Sunday school, like we have before this. New D groups, we've called them E groups in the past, now we are calling them D groups. Discipleship groups that we're going to be starting here in a few weeks where we are going to focus on scripture. No more thematic books that we're going to go through, but scripture. Working through in a year the New Testament. The second year we will work through the Old Testament, then you know what we'll do? We'll start over. With the goal of bringing people in and reproducing those groups. And more and more people being involved in discipleship through scripture. 
weekly messages, Sunday school, D groups, those are all planned, organized events. But probably 75% of discipleship is informal, not formal. Discipleship happens when you privately spend time in God's word. Discipleship happens when you and friends get together just, just because. And you talk about God's word and you go through this iron sharpening iron uh, activity of spending time with each other. That is when you are discipled. That is when you grow. That is when you bring new people into your small groups, into the Christian community, into the faith. If you get into scripture, if you get to know, if you become like Jesus by knowing him, by spending time with him, by spending time in his word, if you get into scripture, you need to do it until you think it, talk it, and quote it. Where your brain's response is scripture, not something else. That is discipleship. Scripture will dominate your thinking and your behavior. Number four, to follow him, we have to leave all. Verse 22, immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. There's a reason Matthew, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, put these two, boat and father, in the scripture. These are the two most significant aspects of our lives. The boat represents our careers, and Father represents our most significant relationships. And upon the calling of Jesus Christ, these men left both of those behind. And said, this, my calling, my discipleship with Jesus, is more important than both of these separately or combined. Jesus is most important. Not this. Following Jesus might be something you want to write down. Following Jesus will always affect these two. And the effect will all often, not always, but often be negative. You can't follow Jesus and hold on to everything else. It just doesn't work. We must subject everything to the lordship of Jesus Christ. It is now all his. Everything of ours is now all his. Family, careers, stuff, things, thoughts, beliefs, all of that. Now the, the truth is, for most of us sitting here today, we will not have to choose Jesus over a job or a family member. It's probably just not going to happen. Statistically, it's not going to happen. For most of us. We did. My, my job is whatever church calls me. I, I might could have a more stable position somewhere else. So my, my calling does affect my job. Most of you won't have that. Now, some of you may. Some of you have uh, maybe called to the mission field. Hannah Bruce is called to the mission field. Her ministry, her calling by Jesus Christ will affect her career the rest of her life. It will also affect her family. There will be those, there are those today, right now, in many countries that are following Christ and losing their families because of it. They're disowned. Maybe even the family wants to kill them because of their faith in Christ. But those are going to be the, the minority. For us, it's going to look simpler, if we can use that word, 
a college student graduating with their degree will take a job in a city that he or she knows needs a church. So they're going to take part in a church plant. That's how they'll choose where they move to. Maybe not the job with the best pay, the best resources, the best upward mobility, but God says, no, I need you in this city helping to plant this church. And so that college student makes that decision for that reason. A high school student, middle school student, elementary school student will choose Jesus over a group of friends and be ridiculed for it, be, be mocked because they won't do the things. Scripture tells us that. Uh, in one of Peter's letters, he says, they think you're strange because you don't do the things they do. And that student will have to give up those things and, and choose to leave behind some comforts of friendships to follow Jesus. A, a businessman or an employee will choose honesty over cutting corners. When everybody else is cutting the corners, when everybody else is cheating, they won't. It would be a quicker way to advance, but they won't. A family will choose to tithe, beginning at 10%, rather than the next thing or experience that that money could have gone to. They will sacrifice those things and the Joneses that they're trying to keep up with in order to give as they should. Or a church member will lose influence because he or she chooses church unity over dissension. And we see things negative happen to those people because they choose first to follow Jesus as a disciple. There is no disciple that doesn't follow Jesus at a cost. I think the New Testament is pretty clear. If you're not, if it's not costing you to follow Jesus, are you really following Jesus? Which leads us to the next and last point. Number five, he commands us to spiritually reproduce. Verse 19b, I will make you fish for people. Disciples have a job. Disciples have a responsibility. And that responsibility is to fish for men just like he did. Scripture tells us Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. That's what we're supposed to be doing too. Now we can't save them. All we can do is introduce them to the one that will save them, but that is our responsibility. And that responsibility is not just for a few of his disciples. It wasn't just for Peter, James, and John, the inner circle of the disciples. It was for all 12 of them. The Great Commission was not for just a few, but it was for everyone. As a matter of fact, Jesus said, if you aren't making disciples, you aren't a disciple. And that seems harsh. And you're like, Michael, prove it. Okay, John 15, 8. It'll be on the screen. My Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit, make disciples, we only have one command, produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. How do we prove to be his disciples? By bearing fruit. What is the fruit of a disciple? Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Go therefore in all nations, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to, uh, everything I have commanded you. But if we took that as far as the emphasis on the grammar, 
there's only one strong verb in the Great Commission. The verb is make disciples. Go, baptize, teach. Those are all I-N-G words. They look back at the main verb. They are aspects of making disciples. Make disciples by going and baptizing and teaching. That is our responsibility. That is how we bear fruit. And if we are not bearing fruit, are we truly disciples? Every ministry of our church, the goal and the intent is to make disciples and train disciples to make disciples. So we look at every possibility. What can we do? Will this make disciples? If it doesn't, we discard it. Will this make disciples? Yes. Let's run headlong into that. Make disciples. That is our calling. That is our purpose. That is our responsibility. As a matter of fact, that is the evidence of us being disciples. And just so we're clear, God's plan to make disciples is not something. God does not have a, 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 a program to make disciples. God has someone to make disciples. You. God's plan to make disciples is not something, it's someone, you. You are God's plan. In his book, The Master Plan of Evangelism, Robert Coleman said, when, when will the church learn this lesson? Preaching to the masses, although necessary, will never suffice in the work of preparing leaders for evangelism, nor can occasional prayer meetings and training classes for Christian workers to do this job. Individual women and men are God's method. God's plan for discipleship is not something but someone. Story of the disciples, their call and their obedience here in this passage isn't just a story of the past. It is a challenge for the future. It's there to tell us how the disciples were called, but is there to challenge us to respond in the same way. It is a model for our obedience. It is an example of immediate, unquestioning, sacrificial response. It's a yes before they even know what the question is. And the response of Peter and Andrew and James and John condemns our any and every hesitation or excuse. Many of us can't find the strength to, to lay down the simplest of hang-ups. And these men left family and career to follow Jesus. You are God's method. So in order to reach your potential, be engaged in the discipleship ministries of the church. However they come along, whenever they come along, as many of them as come along, be engaged in them, be engaged in outreach ministries, learn three circles, learn, be a part of discipleship where we study scripture, be, where, well we should always be studying scripture, be a part of those things where you grow, you are how God intends to make disciples, it's you, you, 
If you're here, I'm talking to you. If you're not here, I'm talking to you. You, individually, not as a group. Yes, as a group, corporately, but not just that. Individually, you, individual person sitting in the pew right next to that other person that I'm talking to, too. You are how God intends to make disciples. Teach someone who doesn't follow Jesus how to follow Jesus while you follow Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit. Did you catch it? Teach someone who doesn't follow Jesus how to follow Jesus while you follow Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit. That is a disciple making disciples. That's all it is. Ask God to help you identify your one today. Maybe this morning the one that you need to identify is you. Maybe you're not a disciple of Jesus Christ. Maybe you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior. Maybe you've been baptized, your name's on a roll, you've done some things. You, you call yourself a Christian, but you're not a disciple because you have never believed. You have never put your faith and trust in him. This morning, you can do that. You might be the one today, but you don't need to leave being the one. Leave being a disciple going after your one. See, God's design was for you to live with him forever in eternity. God's design was perfect and his plan was flawless and then we sinned and we messed up the plan and we still sin and we mess up the plan and sin always messes up God's design and it leads us to brokenness and, and we find that brokenness in various ways but primarily the relationship with God is broken. That is the major brokenness that discipleship fixes and the only fix for that, God, for that brokenness is the gospel. That is what will save us from the brokenness and we only experience the gospel the uh, death burial and resurrection of the perfect sinless son of God in our place and for our forgiveness when we repent of our sins and we believe in Jesus Christ as our savior twofold act that puts us in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ and then once we have been saved once we are no longer a one who needs to be saved, but we are a disciple, we begin to pursue and recover God's design. And that is by making more disciples. That's how we work it. That's how we do it. So maybe this morning you need to be a disciple of Jesus. And you need to follow him. Pray with me. Father, thank you that you call us to discipleship, that you provide the plan, you provide the method, you provide the means, you provide your word. Lord, may we respond in obedience when you call. God, thank you for your patience with us for so many times that we refuse. But Lord, don't let us, no, let us feel the condemnation, feel the, the guilt of seeing the disciples instantly respond where we may take days months or years lord move in this place today if there's someone here who doesn't know you as savior i pray that today they would follow you trust jesus as their savior become a disciple lord move in this place we pray in jesus name amen so what is your decision this morning maybe you need to accept christ i pray that in this time you would pray about who is your one who is that one that you need to... We're going to be talking about this for weeks. So 
begin to pray now. Who is your one? And if you'd like to pray for that one here at the rails, that's great. If you'd like me to pray with you, if you'd like more information, more understanding about how you can trust Christ, now's your time to do it. I'll be standing down front this morning. If you'd like to come forward, that'd be great. Let's stand and let's sing. As you sing, do business with Jesus this morning.